I invite you to take your Bibles and to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We have come to an amazing section of Scripture that we need to slow down and simmer in and and just kind of settle ourselves in these verses. And we're going to take this week and then uh, we'll come back in the new year and, and take a few more weeks to go through these verses. Next week we'll talk specifically about Christmas. The following week we're going to talk about looking back on our year and then the following week after that we're going to talk about looking forward to the new year. So we're, we're going to take a break from Philippians just for three weeks. So I wanted to end, not specifically in these verses in Philippians chapter 2, but I wanted to end with the theme of these verses as seen in a very Christmas-y, Christmas-esque passage. Um, if, you, if you read these verses, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, you will clearly see that the theme of these verses is that of unity. Paul is, is urging the church in Philippi to be unified. You remember that Paul will write ultimately in chapter 4 that there are two ladies that are squabbling and they've kind of brought sides and, and one side's lobbing bombs over to the other side and one side's just trying to defend and lob bombs back. And Paul says, stop that. Go back to the gospel. Do not be divided by your selfishness and pride, but instead be unified. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, I want to read them, and then we'll look at them briefly, and then we're going to go somewhere else to see these verses on display, the theme of these verses on display in an amazing passage in Luke. Uh, But first, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, what, what encouragement is there in Christ? We'll look at this in more depth later. But specifically, just from chapter 1, the encouragement that we have in Christ is that we are saved by God's grace in spite of who we are. We are saved regardless of our background. You remember God saved those three people uh, in Philippi, the jailer, the slave girl, um, Lydia, the uh, amazingly rich, wealthy, well-to-do person. Regardless of background, regardless of aptitude, regardless of your sin, regardless of your family history, regardless of all of those things, God saves God saves by his grace. There is so much encouragement in Christ. If there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and compassion uh, from God to us, from us to each other, from the Philippian church to Paul. Verse 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, we could say united in the same spirit, intent on one purpose or intent on the same purpose. Be unified in your mind, in your love, in your spirit, and in your purpose while you live your life. That's what the heart of these verses is. Be unified. Do not let anything divide you, but rather fight through those divisive things and be unified together. And therefore, Paul then says in verse 3, to fight against the greatest hindrance of unity. Uh, the, the wrench that is thrown into the gears of unity in a church and in a family and with any relationship you have, the wrench that's thrown in to stop those gears from moving is the wrench of self-interest and pride. So Paul says in verse 3, do nothing from selfishness. Literally, nothing, no, nothing at all from selfishness or empty conceit. 
don't have selfishness, don't have selfish ambition, some of your Bibles might say, some of your translations might say selfish ambition. Don't look at others and say, I've got to beat them in everything I do. That's selfish ambition. I've got to be better than them. Don't do that. Don't have empty conceit, vain glory, comparing yourself to others and always thinking you're better than them. Don't do that. Because if you do, you will not be able to live out the unity that Paul is pleading for in verse 2. So instead of selfishness or empty conceit, instead be humble. With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. If you do not think that that is difficult to do, uh, potentially you might not be human. If you do not find it challenging to look at others as more important than yourselves, I think you need to check your pulse. John Calvin says it best, there is no man who does not cherish within himself some idea of his own excellence. All of us think that we're pretty hot stuff. Yes, we sin, but others sin more than we do. And yes, we struggle, but others struggle with the exact same thing. So really, we're better than everyone around us. Paul says, nothing, no nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but instead, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't just look out for your own personal interests, but look out for the interests of others and have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have this attitude of humility in yourself which was also in Christ Jesus. One author says this, Philippians 2 violently goes after the heart of our faith. In the way of the Spirit, the passages here assault our pride and bind up our wounds with grace. Maybe we've heard that the preaching of the gospel afflicts the comfortable and comforts the afflicted. This is exactly the dynamic that is in play in Philippians chapter 2. Paul afflicts our pride and says, you need to think of yourself low and think of others as more important than yourself. You need to, instead of doing things out of self-interest or pride, you need to do things out of utter humility. That's difficult to do, but it's necessary for the body to live, thrive, survive, and be unified. C.S. Lewis says this, pride is a spiritual cancer. It eats the very possibility of love or even of common sense. Pride destroys even our common sense because it makes us think we're awesome when we're not. Tim Keller says, pride makes you a predator, not a person. Jonathan Edwards says, pride is the worst viper in the heart. It is the first sin that ever entered the universe. It it, it lies lowest of all in the foundation of the whole building of sin. It is the most secret, deceitful, and unsearchable in its ways of working of any lusts whatsoever. It is ready to mix with everything. And nothing is so hateful to God, contrary to the spirit of the gospel, or of so dangerous consequence, that there is, and there is no sin that does so much to let the devil into your heart and expose them to his own delusions. Pride is a devastating sin. And I believe that if Christ's Bible Church were to split or were to go under or were to ultimately fail, I believe that we would trace back its failure to pride. Every church split that you ever hear of is traced back to pride. Every opinion that somebody has that ultimately says, I have a reason to leave this church and to bring others with me and to cause a coup, it's because of pride. Do we look upon others 
as more highly than we do ourselves, or do we look at others as really messed up? I I love this passage in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. I'm going to give you a lot of scripture passages that you can just write down because we will not have time to turn to all of them. But Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, really give a a good warning, a, a good challenge to pastors. It's technically to priests, but it has the same truth to pastors, but it really has the same truth for all of us. It says this, Every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. And here's the key. That man can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided because he himself also is beset with weaknesses. That man can take care of the ignorant and misguided, the Bible says, because he himself is ignorant and misguided. You ever find a pastor that looks down upon his sheep and just, why can't you get it together? I'm not struggling with that and probably never have. Or if I did, it was for a millisecond and I'm done with that. Now I'm moving on. Um, If you ever find a pastor that just looks down upon his sheep, it's a telltale sign that he doesn't know his own weaknesses that he is readily beset with. But we do the same thing with each other. Man, how can that person act that way? How can he talk that way? That person's just messed up. I would never be like that. We don't realize that we are beset with weaknesses as well. So if pride is the ultimate killer of unity and pride is the ultimate way to destroy a church, destroy relationships, destroy a family, if pride is what we want to fight against, then what do we want to fight for? And it's obviously humility. We want to fight for humility. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. As I said, we're going to come back to Philippians chapter 2 in a few weeks, but I want to take some time and look at a passage that's very familiar. In fact, we read it a couple weeks ago during our scripture reading and pastoral prayer. It is Mary's Magnificat, and we read this in family devotions a couple days ago. We're kind of celebrating a little bit of Advent. We're trying to uh, have our minds stayed on Christ's first coming, and, and we read this section of Scripture. And as we read this section of Scripture, this idea of humility kept leaping off the page. And as I was thinking about preaching through Philippians chapter 2 and seeing the main theme is that of unity, the main killer of unity is pride, so the main thing that we need to fight for together is humility, I thought, this would be an appropriate place to turn to just to dwell on what humility looks like and specifically how God responds to the humble. This morning we're going to look in Mary's Magnificat at how God responds to the humble and how he responds to the proud. We're going to look at three different ways that God handles the humble and three different ways that God handles the proud. So six things total, but we're going to put them together in pairs. So three ways that God handles the humble and three ways that God handles the proud in these verses. First, I want to start in Luke chapter 1, verse 39. To catch us up to speed, which won't take too long because we're only in Luke chapter 1, so there's not much speed to be had to get caught up. And plus, we're in Christmas season, so we kind of know what's going on. Uh, But to catch us up, God's broken into history, spoken for the first time in over 400 years um, through Uh, The angel Gabriel, he has come to Zacharias to tell him that he and his wife Elizabeth are going to have a baby boy, and that boy is going to be named what? Or who? 
He's going to be named John. And John is going to specifically be the forerunner of the Messiah. So the prophecy that the Messiah is going to be here very soon, soon and very soon, is there inside of Gabriel's uh, prophecy and announcement to Zacharias. You remember the story, Zacharias doesn't believe it, uh, isn't able to talk. When John is finally born, he's able to talk, and they celebrate. And then during that time, when Elizabeth is pregnant, Gabriel goes to who's the next woman that he goes to? He goes to Mary. And Mary hears, you are blessed, and you will conceive and give birth to the Messiah. You are going to give birth to the Messiah. That's it. We're caught up. Um, So verse 39. At this time, Mary arose, went in a hurry to the hill country to a city of Judah, entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? The mother of my Lord would come to me. Already we see humility on display because Elizabeth says, it's as if I were speaking to Ethan in, in Hannah's womb, and I said, you are my Lord, you're my God. You're my Savior. Everybody's kind of looking, going, that's a stomach. (laughs) There's a Savior in there? God is in there? And Elizabeth says, oh, absolutely. I submit to a little baby in the womb. I submit to a fetus. I submit to that little child now. I submit. He is my Lord. Already humbling herself, he is my Lord. Verse 44, for behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what has been spoken to her by the Lord. Mary responds to Elizabeth's joy in this uh, Magnificat, in this prayer that is so saturated with Old Testament scripture that proves Mary knows her scripture. And she says this, verse 46, Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord or magnifies the Lord, makes his name great. And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior, because he has had regard for, and this is the first place that we see humility on display, God had regard for the humble state of his, my Bible says bond slave, it's that word doulos in the feminine form, so it has, has regard for the humble state of his female slave, for behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And I want you to see the, the play between what God does with the proud and what God does with the humble. His mercy, verse 50, is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, and he has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. How does God respond to the humble and respond to the proud in these verses? Number one. Number one, God looks upon the humble with mercy and the proud with judgment. God looks upon the humble with mercy. I told you we're going to take these in pairs. 
God looks upon the humble with mercy, and he looks upon the proud with judgment. Humble with mercy, and the proud with judgment. Specifically, in verse 48, Mary begins by saying he's regarded his, hum, his bond slave, his slave, and how humble she is. He's seen, he's taken note, he's looked upon her humility and her humiliation, her lowliness, and now she'll be counted blessed for generations to come. And specifically, verse 49, 50, 51, begins this theme of what God does with the humble and the proud. Verse 50, his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him, toward the humble, towards those who fear him. This idea of fear, we tend to struggle with this idea of fear. Well, what is this? Is this just being terrified? I think there's part of that. Is this purely just reverence? I don't think it's purely reverence. I think there's part of that. Is this awe? Yes, it's wonder. What is fear? I think a great way to illustrate fear, uh, Chelsea loves watching this video of screaming goats. Have you ever seen screaming goats on YouTube? They scream, they're crazy, goats are crazy. So Chelsea just runs around constantly saying, goat, 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 because she wants to see the goats. After watching Screaming Goats for a while and going through the maze that is YouTube that takes you for seven hours, all of a sudden you realize, I've been watching YouTube for seven hours? How did I get here? There's a, there's a video that I saw called Fainting Goats. Have you ever seen Fainting Goats before? Okay, Fainting Goats, um, you can come up behind these goats. I don't know what the problem is. I don't know why they do what they do, but it's absolutely hysterical. I think God just made them for our humor. You can go up behind a goat and clap or yell or scare the goat somehow and the goat will seize up and just tip over. Trust me, it's true YouTube fainting goats. It's absolutely hysterical. Now, if we were to have like a men's conference, okay, men's conference to a a, a place where there are goats that faint, um, I think that we'd probably put a board with all of our names and a stopwatch and see how fast, how quickly we can make these goats faint, right? There's some competitive spirit in all of us, and we would want say, Daniel, how are you going to make this goat faint quickly? And Daniel would try something, Brian would say, well, that's not going to work. I'm going to try this. Paul would say, you're all wrong. I'm going to make the goat faint this way. And I think we just have a rip-roaring time trying to make goats faint. But let's say instead of this little pen, instead of goats, there's a lion. I don't think that we'd have a game to try and make the apex predator faint. (laughs) I don't think that we'd just rush in and say, let's see how quickly we can make this lion tip over and faint and become scared. We'd be afraid. And there'd be a healthy fear, a healthy nervousness, a a sense of uh, insecurity around this apex predator, this lion. I think of healthy fear, a, a natural fear. And I believe that that is what fear is like in Scripture. It's walking a little bit more gingerly in God's presence. It's not waltzing in and saying, I have the right to be here and thanks God for who you are. It's being a little bit terrified, a little bit nervous, standing in awe, having a proper sense of of fear about being in the presence of holiness. Those people are humble. Those people are 
lowly. Those people submit themselves and bow low and say, I have no right to be here. Like the man in Luke 18 who says, be merciful upon me, the sinner. I'm not comparing myself to anybody else. I'm comparing myself to God, and I come up so short that I'm worthy of death. I'm worthy of hell, and God, please have mercy upon me. And God says, the one who fears him will receive mercy in verse 50. This is a quote straight from Psalm 103. Mary's also going to quote uh, Psalm 107 in verse 53. And there's a lot of other allusions to Old Testament passages. So my question is, how do we approach God? If we humbly approach him with fear, with trembling, with a healthy sense of awe and reverence and respect, God says those people receive mercy. So the question is, how do you approach God? There are examples. This isn't an isolated place in Scripture. There are examples throughout the Scriptures that have people lowly, humbly coming before God and receiving mercy. Just a few for the sake of time. You remember the Syrophoenician woman in Mark chapter 14? Syrophoenician woman, she's a Gentile, she's a pagan, and she has a daughter who is demon-possessed, and she comes before Jesus, and she says, please heal my daughter. Uh, The word in the Greek is uh, literally begging continually without stopping. Please. And Jesus keeps on saying, no, I need to be with my disciples. I'm about to die. I need to be alone. I need to teach them and train them. So no, 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 no. And she keeps on begging, begging, begging. And then Jesus answers her this incredibly embarrassing answer. Every time I read it, I just want to apologize to the Syrophoenician woman on behalf of Jesus. Like, I'm sorry, you know, that's not what you should say. Obviously, it's what you should say because the Messiah says it. The Son of God says it. And he says this parable. He says, I have not come for the dogs. I haven't come for the dogs. I've come for the children. And I haven't come for the dogs. And that's it. And he kind of walks away. Please heal my daughter. Sorry, I haven't come for the dogs. Now maybe you know why it's kind of like, wow, that's harsh, Jesus. And it's interesting because if I were her, I would have said, excuse me, I'm not a dog. I'm a human being. I have a brain. I have feelings. And you've hurt them. And she doesn't say that. She fits herself into the parable. And instead of being offended and saying, how dare you say that about me? She says, yeah, I'm a dog. I'm a dog. What Jesus is saying is there's an order here. I've come for Israel. And until Israel out and out rejects me and kills me, I haven't come for the Gentiles yet. I've come for Israel, and until they reject me, the Gentiles have to wait. Ultimately, because of Israel's rejection, the Gentiles are grafted in, and now we have the gospel, praise the Lord. But Jesus says there's a proper order, and it's not to you yet. And this woman says, I know it's not to me yet. I know I'm a dog, but please, even the dogs get the crumbs that fall from the master's table. I don't even need all of the the loaf of bread. Just a crumb of your mercy will do. That's all I need. She humbly, fearfully, respectfully submits herself, doesn't take offense. This is rightsless assertiveness. She doesn't say, please be merciful upon me because of. She says, be merciful because you're awesome, because you're gracious. I have nothing to offer you. I am a dog. Lord, give me what I deserve, or don't give me what I deserve, because what I deserve is ultimately condemnation. Give me what I don't deserve solely on the basis of your goodness. And Jesus, you remember his response, he's astonished. And he says, what an answer, such an answer has not been seen in Israel. They don't have faith like this. Martin Luther said that he was amazed by this woman 
that she is the perfect picture of the realization of the gospel, that you are more wicked than you ever believed or could possibly imagine, but at the same time, you are more loved than you could possibly have ever hoped, and you are more accepted on the basis of Christ's righteousness alone than you could possibly believe. This woman does not come to Jesus and say, I have rights, give me what I demand. She says, I have no rights. And God has mercy. Remember Zacchaeus, Luke chapter 19, Zacchaeus. Wee little man, wee little man was he, climbed up into a what? Sycamore tree? We're not going to sing it. Um, This man, uh, he wasn't just a tax collector. Remember, he was the chief tax collector. He was the head of all tax collectors. And everybody hated him because he's a liar, he's a, he cheats, and he's funding the Romans who are going around murdering, pillaging, raping people. And the Jews say, what gives? What's going on? You remember Zacchaeus, without any care for his respectability, hikes up his little dress, runs up into a tree just to see Jesus. And I think to, to, to plead with him, have mercy. We ultimately see the response. Jesus comes to him and says, I will go to your house. I'm going to your house today. They have a feast. Zacchaeus repents. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, today salvation has come to this house. Why? He didn't care. He didn't have any sense of, I need to be respected. I need to be looked upon with you know, high honor and esteemed greatly. He says, I am lowly. It doesn't matter if I run or hike up my, my little man dress here and run into the tree. It doesn't matter to me. I want to see Jesus, and I pray that he'll have mercy, and he does. Another example is the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross, who, by the way, begins by ridiculing Jesus and scorning him, just like his buddy on the other side of Jesus. But towards the end of this thief's life, um, as his buddy is crying out with scorn and animosity against Jesus, this man says, stop. And he says this, have you no fear of God in you? Have you no fear of God? This man is innocent. What we are getting, we deserve. I'm a sinner. I don't deserve anything less than what I'm getting right now. So God, would you have mercy on me? Please remember me. Please remember me. Where did God send his own son? He wasn't born in Jerusalem. He wasn't born in Rome. He wasn't born in amazingly high and great places. He was born in an obscure town and in an obscure little section of the town, in a stable. We were the first people to hear the news. It wasn't kings, it wasn't princes, it was shepherds. Dirty, lowly, unclean, unfit to be in the presence of God, and yet there they are worshiping the God-man. God looks upon the humble with mercy, but it doesn't end there. He looks upon the proud with judgment. Verse 51, he has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud and the thoughts and the intentions of their heart, the imaginations of their mind, he scattered them. He gives mercy to the humble. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who come bankrupt before God, say, I have nothing to offer you. I can only enter your presence by your doing, by your grace. A.W. Pink says it this way, grace is the favor of God to those who not only have no positive deservings of their own, but also who are thoroughly ill-deserving and hell-deserving. 
And yet those who would humbly say, that's true of me, and I, I can only stand before you on the basis of mercy, those would receive mercy. Secondly, God not only looks upon the humble with mercy and the proud with judgment, but God exalts the humble but crushes the proud. God exalts the humble and crushes the proud. Verse 52, he has brought down rulers from their thrones and he has exalted those who were humble. Those who were humble, he has exalted. And those who were prideful, who were rulers and saying, I can do all things on my own power, he's brought down. In fact, he has done so much so in verse 51 as to scatter them. They think that they're good. They think they're okay. They think they're better than everybody else. And God says, I'm going to scatter you. And he has done that in verse 51 with his arm, with a, a mighty hand. You kind of hear that Old Testament language, a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. There's a, there's a song that we used to sing and probably will one day, but it says, uh, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, his what endures forever? His love endures forever. And I, I love it, and I know what it's trying to say, but you will, you will rarely, if ever, I actually think it's never see, the phrase, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, referring to God bestowing love. It's always a reference to God doing work of wrath and of judgment. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, he routed the Egyptians. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, he destroyed the Assyrians. So we sing that song, and maybe it's good for us, because we remember, apart from his love that endures forever, we would be destined to face that mighty hand and outstretched arm. But God crushes the proud, Again, this is echoed all over the place in Scripture. Let me just give you some references that you can read on your own time. I would encourage you to go through these, maybe in family devotions or in family worship, as you guys uh, are able to sit down as a family and contemplate Christ's humility as he came and was born. These are some verses that can encourage us to humble ourselves. Matthew 23, verse 12. Matthew 23, verse 12 says, Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. And whoever humbles himself shall be what? Exalted. Luke chapter 18, verse 14. I tell you the truth, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. James 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Martin Luther says it this way, it is God's nature to make something out of nothing. That is why he cannot make anything out of him who is not yet nothing. If you think that you have something to offer God, he cannot make anything out of you. He will not make anything out of you. But if you say, I have nothing, I am nothing, he will make something amazing out of you. He looks upon the humble with favor. He chooses the humble. Again, examples are all over the place in Scripture. Remember David, 1 Samuel chapter 16. All of the seven sons of Jesse passed before Samuel. And Jesse says, surely it must be, I think it's Eliab who's first. It must be Abinadab, I think he's second. It must be so-and-so, it must be so-and-so, it must be so-and-so. And God doesn't look on the outward appearance. He looked at the heart. And where is this little pipsqueak of a man who's out in the wilderness? He's taking care of the sheep. And yes, he does some mighty things with the sheep and, and with the bears and the lions. Yes, but he's also, he's playing a harp when Samuel first meets him. Like, that's not what, when you think mighty warrior, you know, you don't, you don't think 
you know, you don't really think, I'm just going to be chilling, playing a harp. Oh, he's a mighty warrior. And you remember Saul, all of Israel wanted to choose Saul. Why? Because he stood head and shoulders above everyone else. He was tall. That man's going to be great. He's going to be able to defend us. David, not so much. God says, that's the one I want. Not Eliab, not Abinadab. I want the little. I want the lowly. It reminds me of watching um, VeggieTales with Micah's kids. Um, the Veggie Tale on David and Goliath. He's big, I'm little. I don't remember the rest of it, but, but even little people can do big things when God's on his side. I totally botched that, but you know the idea. I don't watch VeggieTales much. <laughs> What about Moses? We studied this before we launched. Moses in Exodus chapter 4 says, don't choose me. I can't go. I stutter. I can't speak very well. Help. And God says, I made your mouth. And that's why I chose you. Because if you could go with eloquence before Pharaoh and turn his heart based on the way that you speak, then it wouldn't be God doing it. I think one of my favorite choices of God is uh, of Peter in Matthew 16. Um, Upon this rock, obviously the gospel and the truth that all of hell cannot prevail against the church, but upon the truth that Jesus is the Messiah proclaimed by Peter, and yes, we don't think Peter was the first pope, but Peter was pretty awesome when it came to the beginning of the church. And yet, what does he say? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, good, I commend you. God gave you that answer, and then I'm going to die. And Peter says, how dare you say that? There's no way you're going to die. Get it right. You're the Messiah. And Jesus says, get behind me who? Get behind me, Satan. This person that God says, I'm going to use you. And he doesn't just mess up in that moment. He's constantly messing up. Even after Acts 2, when he preaches the gospel and thousands are converted, he still struggles in Galatians to the point where Paul has to go to him and, and to his face confront him and say, you are not living the gospel that you pr- preach and proclaim. He's a messed up man, and I praise the Lord for that because God can use little speech impediment messed up men for his glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 29 says just that, that God chooses the lowly and the despised and the humble to confound the wise and the proud. He even chooses things that aren't even in, in existence to confound the things that are. So God, in his grace, exalts the lowly, picks the lowly, chooses the lowly. I don't think Mary's walking around saying, I know that I'm really good and I'm hot stuff and I'm sure that I'm one of the candidates in God's mind for bearing the Messiah. In fact, when the angel comes, she says, how can this be? Uh, who, Who are you? What is this kind of greeting? Favored one of the Lord? What happens to those who are not humble? They are scattered. They are brought down from their thrones. They're crushed. The proudful person says, I can control everything. And God knocks them off of their throne and says, you control nothing. As Thomas Watson said, the proud man is the mark which God shoots at, and he never misses his mark. God looks upon the humble with mercy, and he looks upon the proud with judgment. God exalts the humble and crushes the proud. And thirdly and finally, God satisfies the humble, but the proud are left with nothing. God satisfies the humble, but the proud are left with nothing. This is verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things. Again, a quotation from Psalm 107. 
and he has sent away the rich empty-handed. Now, this could, that word rich, could refer to tangible material wealth, but I don't really think so. I think it's rich in the sense of spiritually wealthy, spiritually rich, just like God would say and Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 5 that the, the poor in spirit are the ones who inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's not that they are bankrupt, literally, have no money. It's that they have no standing before God spiritually. They have no spiritual money to be able to say, I can buy my ticket into heaven based on my goodness, based on my good works, based on whatever. So I don't think this is sending away literally rich people empty-handed, though there are warnings about rich, being rich and wealth and the snare that wealth and riches cause. But ultimately, these people that God turns away, the rich that he sends away are people that believe they deserve more than they have. They're ungrateful for what they already do have, and they think that they can make it on their own. So he turns them away. If you think you can make it on your own, go ahead. And he turns them away. Spurgeon says, if we think we can do anything ourselves, all we will get from God is the opportunity to try. Think you can do it on your own? God will say, go ahead. Go ahead and try. D.L. Moody says, God sends no one away except those who are full of themselves. For why would they need him? God only brings to himself those who say, I, I need to be filled by you. I have nothing. In fact, it's not just that if you're prideful, you go away with nothing. The reality is, if you're prideful, God says in his word that he's adamantly against you. Here's some verses you can write down. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 through 17. 6, 16 through 17. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Prideful, haughty eyes that look down upon everybody and look highly upon themselves. Proverbs 8, verse 13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance, and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. God hates prideful people. Proverbs 16, verse 5, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. James chapter 4, verse 6, God gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God sends away the rich empty-handed. He turns them away, but he fills Those who are humble, he fills them with good things. He sends away the rich. He sends away the prideful people. But to those who say, I've got nothing, he fills them. Turn to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1. God says this, Behold, everyone who thirsts, come, Come to the waters, those who are thirsty. If you say, um, I just need a little bit of water, just a, just a drop. I'm really not that thirsty. It's just a little bit parched. So can I just have a tiny little sip? God says, don't come. But if you are thirsty, if you are lying in the desert of your own sin and selfishness, and you say, I am dying out here without water, he says, come. Those who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Come buy. This is, 
such a strange verse. It's almost like there's a sense of teasing if you don't understand the reality of this verse. God says, come buy this, oh, but you don't have money. Come buy this, oh, but you don't have money. Where does the money come from to buy what God is giving to us? It's as if God says, the only way that you can have genuine satisfaction, eternal life, reconciliation with me, the only way you can have that is through the money of the blood of my son. So I will give you that and you can come and buy. I'll give you that and you can come and buy. I'll pay the price so you don't have to spend anything. How about that for a Christmas present? I'll buy all of your presents and you don't have to spend a dime. God says this, why do you, and I think we could put in there in verse 2, why do you proud people who think you have something to spend money on, or you think you have money to spend? Why do you spend money for what's not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Mary says, God is to be exalted and praised because he satisfies the humble, but he turns away the proud in heart the, the rich, those who say, I don't really need anything. Maybe just a tiny little something, but I don't need life, eternal life. No, I don't need that. Unity is the theme of Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and really the rest of the book. And we're going to dive into that uh, in the coming months ahead. And the greatest enemy of unity is our self-interest, and our own pride. So the greatest thing that we need to fight for, to fight for unity, is humility. How do we do that? Mary says, the humble receives mercy. The humble is exalted. The humble is satisfied. So the question is, how do we humble ourselves? There are so many different ways we can do it, and we're going to look at a lot of those in the future, but how can we do it this morning? What is the basis of our humility? Because the reality is, Humbling ourselves is God's plan A for us. Please humble yourself. Our humiliation by God himself is plan B. If you don't humble yourself, I'll humiliate you. So how do we do this? How do we humble ourselves before God has to crush us, turn us away, leave us unsatisfied, and give us only judgment? Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way. I am told to esteem others better than myself. There is only one thing that can make me do that. There is only one thing that I know of that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust, and that is to look at the Son of God and especially to contemplate the cross. When I see that I am a sinner and that nothing but the Son of God on the cross can save me, I am humbled to the dust and I say that no one can be worse than I am. I am the chief of sinners, and anyone and everyone must be better than I am. Nothing but the cross of Christ can give us that spirit of humility. If you're fighting to humble yourself without staring at the cross, you are fighting a losing war. You are trying to um, run uphill, and you'll be running forever without any rest, without any success. You need to stare at the cross. The cross is the foundation for all of our humility. John Stott says, every time that we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin that I am bearing. It is your curse that I am suffering. It is your debt that I am paying. It is your death that I am dying. 
Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there, at the foot of the cross, that we shrink to our true size. D.A. Carson says, how can anyone be arrogant when he stands beside the cross? How can we stand there and think we are worthy of the love of God? How can we stand there and think, I'm good, I don't need God too much, maybe just a couple percent of his goodness, but I don't need all of him. Finally, John Stott says this way, far from offering us flattery, which a lot of people tend to think, they tend to go there. Does the cross prove that Jesus loves us? Absolutely, absolutely. But a lot of people go, and I was worth dying for. You've got to be careful there. Remember we talked about last week with Toy Story. God doesn't love us because our helmets can do that whoosh thing. Andy didn't choose Buzz Lightyear because he's so awesome of a toy like Woody thought. God doesn't love us that same way. God loves us despite the fact that we are completely messed up, completely wretched. So John Stott says, far from offering us flattery, the cross undermines our self-righteousness. And we can stand before it only with a bowed head and a broken spirit. Only with a bowed head and a broken spirit do we stand before the cross. So in this season of Christmas and in this season of thinking about Christ's humiliation to the point of becoming a slave, a human and a slave, and ultimately to dying the death on the cross that we deserve, when we enter this season of Christmas, I pray that it would produce just one of a thousand things in our hearts and in our minds. I pray that it would produce in us utter humility. And that's what Paul's going to say. Have this same attitude and mindset that was in Jesus Christ. Because if we do not have that humility of mind, we will be looking out for our own interests. We will be elevating ourselves. We will become divisive. Our church will implode God will be dishonored. And we'll walk away from here thinking we're the best thing in the world. We're God's gift to humanity and fight everyone who disagrees with us. But if we humble ourselves in the way that Mary exalts the Lord and says, because of my utter humiliation, this is what Jesus was able to do. This is what God is doing through his son in my womb. He gives me mercy, undeserved favor, though I should be crushed by his righteous wrath. He removes it. He gives me exaltation. As we humble ourselves, he exalts us at the proper time, and he satisfies us. He will not send us away empty-handed. He will say to us, oh, come, drink, be filled, and be satisfied. Father, I pray that you would, in your grace and in your glory and in your goodness and kindness, knit Christ Bible Church together. God, please, we have opinions that could potentially be things that we would war over, we would fight over, and I pray that we would stare at the cross so much, so often, that we would would not even be able to walk away in pride. I pray that we would be utterly humbled in the presence of God and in the presence of your holiness and the presence of a slain Savior. 
And I pray that because of our humility and ultimately our obedience to the command that is given to us in Philippians, that Christ Bible Church would be unified to such a degree that nothing, that no one would be able to separate us. That we would be of the same mind, intent on one purpose, living with the same spirit to glorify you, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Even now, as we have the privilege of being able to worship you through the preaching of your word and worship you through singing and worship you through giving and worship you through all of these different areas of fellowship that we are graciously given by you. I pray that now as we worship you, just simply adoring who you are, we would adore the Messiah, the baby born in a manger, the man who lived a perfect, sinless life, and the man of sorrows who was crushed on the cross, and now the man who rose from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and is in glory, waiting to come to take us home. May we adore the true Messiah today. We pray in your name. Amen.